is kingdom, right? Because that's what we all want. We longing for a kingdom where we want mercy, we want justice, we want kindness, we want people to experience love. But they are trying to go after a kingdom apart from a king. But the king precedes the kingdom. And I think with that then, God is purifying the church and causing a remnant to remain. Amen. So after this morning, the word that God wants to speak to us and encourage us is a word for the remnant. Right? And that is us here. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to 10. Right? This is a word for the remnant. This is a word for Christians. This is a word for disciples that want to center their lives around, around Jesus, His ways, His life, His example, and His teaching. It's not all the other extra stuff, it's just Jesus. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 through 10, it says this, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. A man reaps what he sows. One of the most powerful forces, things in the entire universe is a seed. And there's something about a seed that there's power and potential within the seed that it becomes completely other than it's starting from. And so let's use our imagination together this morning. Let's say that you are an alien. Right? Not an illegal alien. Wrong right? Let's say you're an alien and you are coming to earth for the first time and before you is a watermelon seed. Right? We all know what a watermelon seed is, right? And they present it to you, and you are given a task. What does this seed produce? I would say there's no chance that anyone who has never come across a watermelon or a watermelon seed could ever predict that it would produce a watermelon. Think about it. That black, tiny seed becomes 2,500 times its own weight. It produces a green and black outer rim. I don't know what it's called. Shell. I don't know what it's called. Right? I'm not from... The Land, right? Right? It has a rind and it has red, juicy flesh on the inside. I mean, that's what's produced from a single seed. So we can all together say that a seed is powerful, it has potential, but yet it's also vulnerable more than anything else. There are preconditions that are necessary in order for that seed to produce fruit and become what it's meant to become. A seed by itself is not of much use. But think about what Jesus himself says. He says, a seed, unless it dies, remains a single seed. But only after it dies does it produce and multiply. So what are the prerequisites that's needed for a seed? The first is burial. Right? Then it's darkness. Then some manure. Anyone experienced manure in the past few years? Right? You might have a different name for it out in the streets, but manure, right? Pressure, time. I think time is oftentimes 
the hardest thing for us to endure when we know the power of destiny. We know the potential that God's given us, but yet we have to endure darkness, pressure, time, all of these things, and yet we're wondering when is it going to produce fruit? Now, I've grown up in the church my whole life, like Jesus has said, and I got saved in high school, and I remember one of the things that I've been wrestling with this past year is the whole idea of potential, right? I got saved, and I had leaders invest in me, pour into me, I had, you know, met prophets that gave me prophetic words and promises, and I remember at that time thinking, God has given me all these promises, all these prophecies, because I have so much potential. Man, these leaders get to see something in me, so they invest in me, and I hear all these encouragements, and yet I, I've been, been uh, doing my best to be faithful, and yet I'm not seeing His promises come to pass the way that I thought it would. And I started to wonder, maybe God's promises had nothing to do with my potential. Think about this. We all know Abraham, right, the father of our faith. The father of many nations as God appoints him to be. But God gives him a promise that, that he would be the father of many nations, that he would have so many descendants that he's told to go out into the desert and count the stars if you can, because your descendants without numbering. But how many sons did he actually have? One. And he had to wait till he was a hundred to get it. But in God's promises, you're going to have a lot of kids, a lot of descendants, and he picked it based on potential. He might have picked someone like Jesus, who has three kids and the fourth on the way in his thirties. Are you with me? <laughs> right? Because that's how potential works. Like, this kid has a lot of decades left of making more babies. Let's choose him. He has potential. He has a family already. No, he chose someone who was already 75, had no kids, and yet that was going to be the father of the nations. Because God doesn't call based on potential, but our dependence on the Lord. So a lot of the things that we've been experiencing, it's that process of killing the seed within us so that we can multiply, so that we can bear fruit. But I, I want to help us, like maybe it's kind of meta to think like this, not just sowing seeds, but becoming the seed and sowing ourselves. Allowing ourselves to die so that God can produce the fruit. A lot of ministries I've been a part of have been about church planning, and we would do like disc assessments and Enneagram and all these things, which is fine, I'm not against it, right? But a lot of times we would look at Apostle Paul, and we would look at that he's an eight, he's probably this and that, and that's why God used him in that way to pioneer all these churches because of his personality. In those moments, I had to pause and say, no, God did not pick Paul because of his giftings, his personality, his education. God picked Paul because he was the last choice of the church. God used Paul because he himself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I am the chief of all sins. God was looking for the most unlikeliest of apostles, and then he found Paul. Does that make sense? Like his teaching comes into play. Right, his education comes, all those things matter, but why did God choose him? It wasn't potential. It's because he was the last chosen. I mean, think about it. He has this amazing encounter with Jesus on the road to Tarsus, uh, or Damascus rather. He's blind, he has chains fall off, 
Like, he has a testimony. He shows it to the church. He said, guys, I'm here. And the church is like, no, you're not. Get out of here. Like, he was a terrorist on the most wanted list. Yet that was God's choice because God's not calling based on potential. He's looking for people that would depend on it, remain faithful to the end. But that's what God is trying to develop within the remnant of his people is that all the things that we think would make us a thriving church or a good church or a thriving husband or wife, all those things go out the window and has to come back to our dependence on Jesus. It has to be about Him. So all the human stuff, I think, is what God has been whittling away, refining in these past moments. And I'm just trying to understand what is God doing. Right? Because I'm sure you know things that used to work don't work no more. Right? God is going after the purity of the faith that's dependent on Him. That means also shedding our American, Western culture mentality when it comes to church. I'm sure you have heard the term glory to glory before, amen? And up until this year, recently, I would have defined glory to glory this way. We hold events, we do conferences, you're more than welcome to come. If we ever do one again, I don't know, right? (laughs) But to me, glory to glory would be, man, we had 500 kids last year, but this year we have 1,000. That's glory to glory. But that's this mentality of glory to glory means that more to more. Or increase to increase. But if you look in Scripture, that's not how it's actually defined. Think about Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Then he goes to Calvary. Friends, that's glory to glory as well. That decreasing, that dying, that the letting go of self. We talk about faith to faith. But guys, faith is only developed in crisis. Faith is only developed in moments where you need God to come through or else. Strength to strength. How does God define strength? When we are weak, His strength is made perfect. It's the stripping away of God. Tell me then what it really means to go after glory to glory. I mean, think about Paul where he's in jail, he's writing the letter, he's dying, and yet he says, I'm finishing well. Like, I ran the race, I fought the good fight. Like, bro, everyone loves you. What are you talking about? Like, you're moments away from dying and you know it. And he, what's one of the things he says before I think he says, to, to, to die is Christ, no, no, to live is Christ and to die is King. Like, it's undoing our go, go, go culture. Our mindset of increase and more to maybe glory is in the dying. Maybe the glory is in the decrease. Maybe the glory is preaching less rather than more. And I think that's what God is trying to purify us from. And I realize one of the things that God is doing in me, and maybe what makes sense to everyone here, is God not only wants to save me from my sins, He wants to save me from my ambitions. He wants to save me from my ministry. But think about all the famous names of people that we read their books, we listen to their podcasts, and yet they follow like, I don't want to lose my soul. But you know when Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but yet lose his soul? I don't think he's saying that to the CEO in, in the secular world as much as he's speaking to Christians within the house of God. Like, when Jesus is saying, in the last these people would come, 
and say, did we not preach? Did we not heal the sick? Did we not cast out demons? I don't know about you, but I've never met a secular, non-believer living in the world cast out a demon before. I've never seen them heal the sick either. He's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to us about the very dangers of what could happen if we keep going the way that we've been going all this time until we have this reset, this reforming, this refining period that's so necessary because the revival is coming back. But God has to set the house in order so that it can be filled. So, so for me, as I'm processing all these things and I've been wrestling with things that I believed in, you know, all these years, I'm wanting God to be real in a way that maybe I've never wanted Him to. Like, I want the real thing. Anyone else? Like, you're hungry for the real thing. Not the Instagram filtered ministry version of light smoke machines and glory. No, like, I want the real thing. And whatever the cost. Like, strip everything away if you must. But I just want the real thing. I want the restoration of the real thing. So for me, as I've been on this journey of God, you know, refining, I'm sure all of us here, one of the things I, I felt, and I put it on my Instagram, I just shared it, it's like, I've been a Christian my entire adult life, right? I know I look like I'm 18, but, yeah. <laughs> Korean food does that for you, right? Anyways. I've been a Christian my entire adult life, and one of the things I felt like I needed was not just an oil change. Like, if my life is a car, like, I've racked up 250,000 miles. An oil change will no longer do. Like, I need to be, like, this might sound heretical. Like, I don't actually believe this, right? This being last year, get this out of there. Like, I don't believe this, right? But I, I wanted to be born, reborn, born again. Right? I know that's not theologically correct, but you're born again. But I felt like I needed to be born again, again. Like, I feel weary, I feel tired, I feel like a good prayer meeting is not enough. I need God to do an entire engine haul. Right? Anyone remember, like, Pit My Rod from MTV? Like, I need that or something in the spiritual sense of my life. Jesus, Pit My Rod, please. Right? And as I'm thinking that, the, the person I, I was gravitated to was Apostle John. But all know John, right? He was probably the youngest disciple out of the twelve. And think about this young man where he sees Jesus, he encounters him, he leaves fishing behind, he leaves his family behind, and he follows Jesus all this time. Like, he's in a pretty exclusive group of the twelve disciples, amen? But let's make it even more exclusive. Exclusive. He's part of the three. Right? Him, his brother, and Peter. They're part of the three. So following Jesus for three and a half years, he himself gets to see what even the others disciples don't get to see. He gets to see Jairus' daughter resurrected. He gets to see Jesus transfigured. Like every disciple ran away and were afraid when Jesus was arrested and was about to be crucified. But there was one disciple that still lagged behind us there, and that was John. Now think about this. Jesus is the Son of God, but I also think he was a mama's boy. Right? He is the Son of God, but I think he's a mama's boy. Right? And we see when Jesus is on the cross, one of his 
like maybe his final request in that moment was to John and to his mother. And he says, Mother, John is now your son. John, now this is your mother. I mean, think about how close John and Jesus must have been in order for Jesus to entrust the closest person in his life to this disciple named John. Like, that's how close they were. He saw Jesus transfer. He saw miracles. He saw all these things up close. And then obviously he sees the resurrection. He sees Jesus' scars. We know John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit anointed, he writes himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved in his own gospel. We know that, right? Where he is uh, there with the rest of the disciples and meeting with Jesus, and yet he leans on Jesus' chest. Like, what? That's pretty uncomfortable for John and Jesus, but Jesus allows it to be done. Right? You ever notice that Jesus is not afraid of awkward? Like, he's at a dinner with men, and a woman is there crying on his feet. Doesn't address it until they do. Like, he's not afraid of awkward. So John, he's awkwardly lying on Jesus, says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus is of. All that to say, Let's imagine how close John was to Jesus then. Right? We see him as the early church comes, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. You know today's Pentecost, right? Pentecost Sunday. He's baptizing the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches, he sees thousands come to faith. He builds the church. You know that the only disciple that's recorded in Scripture that's marked in the book of Acts is John's own brother James. And yet, John still marches forward in faithfulness. I'm trying to imagine, John is somebody who has given his entire life to Christ since his youth. There are few people that have ever, ever been close to Jesus as much as John. And yet, we find him in Revelation, where he's old and they think he's like 92 years old. And he's exiled to the island of Patmos. I don't know if you guys knew this, but Tertullian, he's one of the early church fathers, he writes a letter called The Prescription Against Heretics, right? That's going to be the title of my next book, Prescription Against Heretics, right? But that's a letter that he writes, and in one of the lines he says, we are so blessed. The church is so blessed because we have persevered, we've made it through by the doctrine of the apostles as well as the blood that we're willing to shed. He talks about Peter who gave his life who was martyred. He talks about Paul who was also martyred. But he talks about John who wasn't martyred. Instead, did you notice, John was boiled alive in oil at a Colosseum. But he didn't get any injuries. So the Roman king was like, dude, we can't kill him. What should we do? Let's exile You guys know that's like written in early church letters, right? Tertullian does doesn't go into detail because it was a well-known fact already within the church that that was John the Apostle's life. Guys, I can't even eat pizza without burning the roof of my mouth. This man was boiled alive in oil and did not have any injuries. They're like, we can't kill him. Wait, check this out. The Colosseum sees this old man being boiled in oil, not having any injuries. They all get saved. They're like, Christianity is going to grow in anything that's exiled. <laughs> so he's exiled. In the island of Pamela, he's 92 years old, many people believe. He's at the end of his life. He's been faithful for decades. 
And yet, there's still one more thing left there. I want to just read it together. Revelation chapter 1. I'm just preaching on the Johns here, I guess. John the Baptist, Apostle John. Next time I'll do Papa John. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. It says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Diatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. I'm going to pause here. Interesting note, the emperor that banished um, Apostle John from Patmos, his son died at an early age. But they deified the young son. They put him on a coin, and on the coin, like you can Google it right now, there's a picture of the young boy, and there's seven stars around him, and they deified him. Like that's the, the father of the emperor that banished John. But here comes Jesus being like, no, I'm the real God. Does that make sense? Because he has this, anyways, let's keep going, right? I'm going to geek out on the author right here. <laughs> Verse 13, And among the lances was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth, was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let's use our imagination together. The young John who followed Jesus because he loved him would lay on his chest at meals. Now in his old age sees Christ like he's never seen him before. And all he could do was to fall at his feet as the dead. He's seen everything about Jesus. He saw the transfiguration, yet he's never seen Christ like this before. And from that encounter, from that fresh vision of seeing Christ again, the book of Revelation is written. What I'm trying to say is this, if we're wanting the restoration that we are feeling that we need, it won't come through self-help, it won't come through self-will, it won't come from listening to the next podcast or going to the next event. It comes by beholding the one you love in a way you've never seen him Seeing him as like you've never seen him with eyes of fire before. You've never seen him with hair like wool before. And in that moment, the man he's given his entire life still had not to give. Restoration comes from an encounter to see him 
once again. To help us get that more, I have a video I would like to show at this time. Oh, let me, uh, let me uh, get some background first. Um, I'm Korean. I think the only one here is today. I'm Korean and, you know, if you know this, maybe you, do, maybe you don't. Korea had a civil war in the 1950s. Technically, that civil war has never ended, even to this day. They signed an armistice, a ceasefire, and even to this day, on the 30th parallel that divides North Korea from South Korea, there are soldiers from both sides guarding it 24-7, because technically they're still in war. But when the war happened in the 50s, a lot of these things, like this is a durable country. A lot of the families split up, they read, the parents lost kids, kids lost their parents, they lost siblings, because they were all running away from the North to survive. But in the 80s, there was a program on TV that was trying to help these families that have been dispersed find their lost relatives. And that's the, the context of this video. <laughs> If 
you look at the testimonies from a lot of these family members that experienced it, a lot of them say, now I can live. Like, now I can live. Like, I was just making it through, and now I found a reason to live. Friends, I want to encourage you. Let us not grow weary in doing good. Imagine what then it would be like when families are reunited with families. But one day when we're reunited with our Lord, when we get to see Christ with our own eyes and see Him for ourselves, let us not grow weary in doing good, because at the proper time, we will be harvest. Amen? We need that fresh vision to see Him today. I want to pray for us right now. God, I just pray that you know our journeys thus far. You know what these past seasons have been like of, of, of storms, crisis, circumstances, trials, transition, all of the above. Many of us are weary. Many of us are tired. But God, I'm praying this morning that what we are needing is not more books or podcasts or experiences or programs. What we need is a fresh vision of you. A fresh vision of you. Help us see you rightly now. Not as culture defines you. Not as our memory defines you. Not as our disappointments define you, but to see you rightly as you are. God, I pray that you would help us to see you today. If you're here this morning and you're saying, Sam, I'm with you, bro. I need a fresh vision of it. I'm weary. I'm tired. I need restoration. I've done everything I could. I'm
wanted you in the big ministry. I wanted you and and the, the fairy tale family, whatever it is. And I just surrendered all this morning and said, God, I just want you. I just want you. I can't go on without you. I can have the whole world. Thank you. 